Hello, everybody. This is Roberto Pequafilho, your host for today's episode of the Global Kidney Care Podcast. I am a nephrologist and the chair of the International Society of Nephrologists Education Working Group. This podcast is one of the educational offerings of the ISN. And for the full content, you can visit academy.dism.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at ISN Education. In this episode, we're joining the NEF Madness, a nephrology educational initiative that is modeled after the traditional American college basketball tournament and one of the most popular sporting events in North America called March Madness, but with a nephrology concept. The Global Kidney Care Podcast will join a pod crawl exploring one of the most dynamic fields in clinical nephrology today, IgA nephropathy. Check out how the organizers describe the pod crawl. Welcome to the Neff Madness Pod Crawl. The idea behind a pod crawl is for a variety of podcasts to coordinate on timing and topic to push a theme and get each other's listeners to explore all of the podcasts. One of the very first goals behind Neff Madness was to build a community. And in the early years of Twitter, Neff Madness was central to the formation of Neff Twitter and defining the ethos that makes our online community kind, intelligent, vibrant, and interesting. The Neff Madness pod crawl hopes to inspire and grow the nephrology podcast community in the same way. For 2023, our second year, Podcrawl has assembled the Avengers of medical podcasts. We have the Curbsiders, Get the Skinny on Mineralocorticoid Receptor Antagonists. Core IM will be covering kidney transplant in their classic five pearl format. The Cardio Nerds will be covering the effect of heart failure devices on kidney health. Freely Filtered will try to understand thrombotic microangiopathy. ISN Global Kidney Care goes deep on IgA nephropathy. The Cribsiders look at transitions, first the pediatrics to adult nephrology transition, and then from living to death with palliative nephrology. And fellow on call will be covering onco-nephrology. And finally, the Nephron segment looks at transgender health and CKD. Eight podcasts, one for each region in this year's Neph Madness. Go to nephmadness.com slash podcrawl to get links to all of the shows. Thanks. Okay, so let's let's get things started. Super excited to be here today with uh, two Danas. This is gonna be tricky, guys. We're gonna see how we're gonna, you know, discuss with you, with each other. But um, I, I think the right way of starting this is to go through some of. Um, Introductions. I, I want to let you introduce yourself, and uh, I'll start with Dana Larson. Dana, hello, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. Uh, my name is Dana Larson. I'm a clinical nephrologist over at University of California, San Francisco, and I am very much a new kid on the block here. I just uh, started into practice, graduating fellowship in June of 2022. Uh, so excited to be here, learn and discuss through IGA today. Cool. As I said, uh, very welcome and uh, very nice to have uh, 
you know, someone fresh in the throttle, <laughs> you join in the discussion. Thanks. Um Dana Rizik, um, we know each other for a while, but uh, maybe the audience doesn't. So can you introduce yourself? Hey, Roberto. Thank you for inviting me. I'm also excited to be here and uh, pleasure meeting uh, Dana Larson. Uh, my name is Dana Rizik. I'm a professor of medicine in the Division of Nephrology at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. I've been in practice for quite a few years now, and my main research interest revolves around glomerular diseases, in particular IgA nephropathy. So I'm happy to be here today. Cool. Yeah. So the topic today is uh, IgA nephropathy. This is a global uh, podcast, and we'll have listeners from every corner of the world um, joining this and uh, IgA nephropathy is a good disease to talk uh, from a global perspective, isn't it? It is the most common cause of primary IgM. Um, it varies a lot in different countries and regions in terms of many aspects, and I'm hoping to explore that with you guys today. And um, I think um, more and more we understand IgA as a real. Uh, kidney health uh, problem globally. Uh, Dana Risk, um, how do you see these differences uh, across geographies? It, is it really the same disease across different countries and people are so different? So, so what is your take on the global differences in IgA nephropathy? Uh, so, Roberta, as you mentioned, this is uh, definitely a global disease. However, we do see differences in the prevalence of the disease across the world with the highest prevalence noted in Asia, in particular in East Asia. And then as you come to Europe, uh, the prevalence uh, decreases. It's uh, less in the United States and South America, and it's really rare, or rarely described, at least in Central Africa. Um some of that may be detection issues, meaning the indications for biopsies change from continent to continent, and screening for patients uh, in, in terms of urine analysis, looking for hematuria, proteinuria, so on and so forth, also differ across the world. However, we do believe there is a difference in the risk uh, for developing the disease, and that's based on genetic studies or genome-wide association studies to be specific that show that, for example, Asian populations seem to have a higher genetic predisposition to develop the disease. And there may be other environmental factors that play a role that explain this wide variation in uh, disease prevalence. Um, the disease severity and course are also somewhat different. Uh, that has been borne out in studies that looked at pathologic differences, so the presentation of the disease pathologically uh, the rate of decline in kidney function over time, so on and so forth. We do also see differences in disease severity across the world. So these, there are probably true differences, biologic differences in how the disease presents. Right. And, and Dana Larson, you, you, you live in San Francisco, a very diverse city, and you just finished fellowship. What has been your experience with, uh, with this disease so far? So I've seen and treated a handful of patients here in San Francisco. And uh, just as Dr. Risk was kind of alluding to the, the 
presentation has been quite variable from those patients that I've seen here in San Francisco, kind of matching our population that's been diverse and um, kind of the diversity that we see with presentation here. So I've had you know, the younger patient um, as an adult nephrologist coming in with sort of your classic synphrogenic signs of gross hematuria, a little bit of high blood pressure um, with their upper respiratory infection. And then I've also had sort of the patients that come in unknown, a little bit of microscopic hematuria in their urine. We're doing an evaluation, eventually get to biopsy and determine that it's IgA based on the biopsy. So it really, I've seen a spectrum in just my short time here um, and across just a very few number of patients that I've seen today. Right. Yeah. And uh, then I risk uh, the, you know, the, 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 I know that there's been a lot of investigation about, you know, biomarkers and things like that. Um, do we have something in the horizon that would improve our uh, way to, to diagnose and even stratify risk in those patients? Are, are we still counting on you know, the usual stuff and, and especially the biopsy results? So this is a great question, area of uh, hot research, I would say. So we do, at, the, uh, at this point, rely on what I refer to as classical biomarkers. So, and they work. So serum creatinine, levels of proteinuria, biopsy findings, uh, all these are biomarkers that are valuable uh, they're probably not as specific as we'd like them to be. So I think in the future, we would uh, hopefully rely on disease-specific biomarkers being right. the presence of uh, things like galactose-deficient IgA, its autoantibody, uh, some markers perhaps of complement activation. And even on the biopsy, there's a lot of new cool technology that allow us to interrogate the tissue differently. And all these together, I think in the future, will help us uh, risk stratify patients much better mm -hmm. and perhaps select the right therapy for the right patient with more specificity. Right. Yeah. And I think the, the international IGA and property prediction tool really puts, puts things together very nicely, right? Uh, Dana Larson, is there something that, um, that you find it useful? And is it, uh, do you see, um, problems with that in terms of implementation in clinical practice? Yeah, I think uh, I've used it, as I said, just a handful of time. But um, when I've gone to try to use it, I think one of the hardest parts, uh, you definitely need the biopsy <laughs> in order to implement versus the, the MEST scoring mm. um, and kind of uh, more than a snapshot in time for these individuals. But right. as far as kind of uh, implementation and use, I've only had a few instances of that. So I'm going to pass that to Dr. Riss to kind of explore a little bit further. Yeah. yeah, no, Dana, I think you nailed it. So I think the the risk prediction tool is a great tool, uh, but the time horizon that it can cover, it can only predict the outcomes of uh, patients uh, within five, at the most six, seven years from the time of biopsy. And so for a young patient, like the one that uh, Dana Larson, you know, described a little earlier, that may not be a long enough time frame uh, to give the patient meaningful information. The other Limitation had been that the tool can be applied at the time of the biopsy. So if you happen to see the patient as a second opinion or a few years after the biopsy, you couldn't apply this tool. Although there has been a recent publication from the same group led by Sean Barber in Toronto, uh, in Vancouver, I'm sorry, 
uh, that uh, validated now a new or modified uh, tool that you can apply one year after the biopsy and two years after the biopsy. Uh, and that, again, is helpful because it'll be nice to be able to you know, predict a patient's outcome as you're treating them and as their course is changing. Um, so hopefully, again, more to come in the future. Yeah, well, talking about the future, um, there's some some cool things going on, right? You know, just, you know, big projects in Europe, also in the U.S., that try to, you know, get this information from kidney tissues, uh, pair it with um, very nice clinical identification of patient phenotype and you add the, you know, samples of serum, um, um, genetic information. And just um, just to wrap up this part of the conversation about, you know, the, the mechanisms of disease and how we can understand this better. What's what's in the horizon, uh, Dana Risk, um, uh, in terms of, you know, trying to apply this uh, this platforms and maybe personalize uh, diagnosis and uh, and advance the field? Yeah, so I think all sorts of omics are being looked at. Um, mm. Again, uh, either to tissue or biological samples, blood, there's a lot of interest in urine. Uh, again, easily accessible. You can get it, you know, quickly from any patient in clinics or so forth. So, I think in the future, we will be hopefully able to risk stratify patient to determine disease activity based on some of these biomarkers. You know, when we see somebody that has, you know, proteinuria and just a tiny bit of hematuria, is this somebody that has an immunologically active disease or is this somebody that has mostly chronicity? We don't know at this point in time. And then finally, it will be good if we can use these as diagnostic uh, tools and you know, whether they replace uh, the the need for a biopsy, I don't know, uh, perhaps in the future. But for now, I think biopsy and tissue gives us a lot of important information. I think we're going to need it for the foreseeable future. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, we were recently in the discussion with the... Uh, in a meeting organized by KDU about, you know, quality of CKD care. And obviously this kind of... <laughs> discussion came up and uh, it was interesting because at the end of the discussion people felt that uh, in even though there's a future for what they call the liquid biopsy or you know just replacing biopsy with information from urine and uh, or in the blood but to get there maybe we go through a phase the biopsy will become even more important right and uh, you know, really advancing the information on what is going on in the kidney tissue—it's it's probably going to be crucial for us to to move in that direction. Totally agree. And I mean, you look at the cancer field up yeah. to this day; they still do biopsies, even though they have—they're probably you know ahead of us in terms of other biomarkers and cancer-specific biomarkers. So uh, we we need our pathology colleagues for a long time. I know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and also we, we rely on, you know, a, a streamlined um, access to biopsy. And uh, I, I know Dana Larson that, you know, in, in some places in the U.S., some training centers in the U.S., 
nephrologists are um, being trained to perform biopsies and be more proactive in the process in other regions of the world, perhaps even more, you know, interventional nephrologists is, mm-hmm. a, is such a, you know, an, an exciting field. How, how do you see this, um, you know, the involvement of nephrologists in the procedures and things like that, just to make make sure <laughs> that we we have a broader, you know, um, access to to biopsy results there that seems to be still very crucial in the strat- stratificational risk and even perhaps in defining uh, treatments. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, you bring up a, a hot topic. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> kind of the thought process in the United States over the the ongoing teaching of biopsies and fellowship. And um, I'll say I was uh, trained to continue to, to be able to do biopsies, but very closely with our ultrasound colleagues. Uh-huh. Um, and I definitely can see the role, obviously very limited just here in the United States for what I've seen and, and what I experienced, but um, can see the role for the growing use of the interventional nephrologists and kind of that uh-huh. specialty area. Um, I totally agree with you that uh, we have to comp- Continue to be diligent to make sure we don't sort of lose our access to doing the biopsies, especially for these kind of crucial fields where increased diagnostics may be increased biopsies or more frequent biopsies when we're trying to prognosticate down the line. Um, and so I think that is a crucial question right now in uh, sort of U.S. nephrology fellowship training as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. From from a global perspective, you know, the the ISN has been very proactive in stimulating training. There is a a whole set of um, uh, educational tools in the ISN uh, educational platform. And then it's it's traditional to have in the World, World Congress on Nephrology some activities related to that. Some of them hands-on, which is I think very important. And um, it is it is a hot topic also from an international perspective. All right, guys. So, so I think now it's it's time to turn into the big the big elephant in the room or the big big controversy topic, which is treatment. Right? Uh, I think. Uh, there has been huge changes in, um, you know, not only in the the way people are assessing treatment, uh, but also in terms of the pipeline on new drugs. And I wanted to just explore this um, topic a little bit um, more with, with you guys. And first of all, I think there is an understanding today that um, the treatments available or the treatment approach and the treatment uh, options, they they cannot fall into two big um, blocks in terms of um, options. One, the immunosuppressive uh, treatment, and the other one, the kind of supportive treatments. And um, maybe we'll keep that division. But at the, at the end, I wanted to try to bring, you know, uh, try to, to see if we can get to a consensus about, you know, how to combine those things and how, how things will look like now and, and in the in the near future. But starting with the, the supportive treatment, I think um has been some some evolutions in, in in this in this area. I know that that we have you know the the the, the importance of the blood pressure control for instance or you know diet diet measures and other things and of course the RASI inhibition is another issue starting with that aces and arbs are, are important as a you know standard of care but um 
you know, I I come from the CKD world and uh, especially looking at the real world practice, you know, this underuse of RASI and also the, the subdosing is such a big problem. Do, do you also see uh, the, you know, the, 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 the challenges for implementation of RASI therapy in, in GN and more specifically in IGA nephropathy as a, as a, as a big thing in, 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 in the real world? And I would address that uh, to you, Dana Larson. You know, the, 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 do you see problems with that kind of, you know, approach? And if so, you know, what do you think that could be done to change that? Yeah, I mean, I think there's always improvements that can be made, uh, definitely uh, to kind of increasing compliance, if you will, or increasing mm. um, physician awareness and knowledge as, as far as getting those treatments that are really known to have significant benefit out and to the patients. Um, I think it's hard both ways sometimes with both education of the patients at the same time, at the importance of these medications, especially as there's more and more information available online for patients to be reading about right. both the benefits and the side effects and trying to kind of work together hand in hand with the patients to really ensure our understanding and our reason for why we're um, kind of uh, prescribing and, and recommending these medications. So I think there's always work to be done and ways that we can improve um, both patient compliance and also physician awareness and um, applying these treatments uh, off the bat um, as, as the initial therapy that we know they work really well for. Right, yeah. And, and then I read the... Uh, I know that I've used in the past, you know, in some patients who have very severe proteinuria, you know, strategies that, you know, even combine ACEs and ARBs. Is that something that you, you do sometimes? And do you see, you know, more problems when, you, when you're more aggressive taking their approach? That's a great question. When we didn't have any other options, yeah. combining ACE and ARB was common practice. Uh, however, there was emerging data, again, mostly in the CKD world, that the combination of those drugs can increase the risk for acute kidney injury and potentially hyperkalemia problems as well. And so it has fallen out of favor. And I would say that if I have patients that have been on a combination therapy for years and have done well, I leave them alone, especially if they don't have significant proteinuria. Yeah. Uh, but that's just my practice. Uh, I wouldn't start somebody on a combination therapy, especially in light of newer options that we have, namely SGLT2 inhibitors and mm -hmm. uh, perhaps even some of the mineralocorticoid antagonists. Uh, so, um, I uh, yeah. So so at this point in time, if I have somebody on maximized on RAS inhibition who still has room. Uh, if he or she still have significant proteinuria, I would probably turn to an SGLT2 inhibitor at that point in time. Yeah, that was that was the big big news, right? From last last couple of years, starting with APA CKD and the subanalysis of IgA nephropathy patients, and then the Ampakini recent results right. kind of went in the same direction. Quite impressive effect on not only on you know on albuminuria reduction, but also the hard outcomes. Absolutely. Actually, the the results in the reduction in in kidney events is is really impressive, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, were yeah. you surprised uh, uh, with the with the results of the CKD confirmed by? Yeah, yeah. I really was. I mean, conceptually, at the beginning when these drugs came about, I didn't think that having sugar in the urine would be a good idea. Uh, 
but uh, evidently I was proven wrong. Um, and the results in DAPA-CKD DAPA were impressive. The cohort of IJN patients, yeah. although quite large, was a little bit sicker than the patient population that we typically see or think of when we think of IgA nephropathy. So they had a higher prevalence of diabetes, heart failure. So we thought, well, maybe that's closer to a CKD cohort than a typical IgAN patient cohort. Uh, but I think AMPA kidney really sealed the deal. I mean, this is one of the largest IgA, IgA nephropathy cohort, over 800 patients in AMPA kidney. Yeah. And the results were very, very similar. Again, impressive uh, outcomes in terms of hard outcomes, uh, you know, with end-stage kidney disease, reduction in GFR, and so on and so forth. Um, so I think the, the results speak for themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I'm, I was an investigator in DAPA-CKD and uh, had a couple of my patients with IgA nephropathy. It is, it is interesting because I was seeing this as a, I mean, it is a CKD trial, right? Yeah. But it's interesting to see how when you're challenged as an investigator, you know, to include patients in a CKD study. You know, this, yes. these are patients that already have reduction in GFR, persistent albuminuria. It's interesting to see how easy it was to include IgA nephropathy patients. There was no definition that the study wanted patients with IgA nephropathy. It, it was just a reflection what what is CKD practice around the globe, and, and it just you know it was amazing that, to see the numbers. It's just right. that, you know, p patients yeah. with IgA nephropathy, that, 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 that there was a perception from an investigator perspective that those patients shouldn't be on immunosuppression at that time of recruitment. How common uh, IgA nephropathy became uh, when looking at the characteristics of recruited patients. I was uh, so very impressed about that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, it is a rare disease in the big scheme of things, but it's not that rare. And when you look for these patients, you find them. So I totally agree. The other impressive thing with both studies is that they included patients that had GFRs that were fairly low. I mean, DAPA yeah. CKD went down to an EGFR of 25 and AMPA kidney down to 20. And this is a population that is in desperate need of interventions that make a difference. So right. I, I think kudos to the investigators and the, you know, the the sponsors and everybody that was involved in designing the trial. Yeah. Well, I think this is this is great um, because I think I think until until not very long ago, patients with a low GFR, we we're kind of like giving up on them, right? Yeah. And they're saying, well, there's nothing much I can do. So I think this brings hope. And I know that some of the, you know, uh, ongoing trials are really challenging this uh, threshold of GFR for inclusion in, in, in treatments, which is really, really, I think, important for patients, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So well, maybe, yeah. I was going to say several trials have exploratory cohorts yeah. Uh, with EGFRs between 20 and 30. And the they were the sponsors were surprised how quickly these cohorts filled up, again, just reflecting the need, the unmet need in that population. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and just to, to wrap up the SGO2 inhibitors, it seems like we can't get enough with it, right? It's such a popular drug nowadays because of the safety profile too. And I think... Um, it might really help 
in terms of the you know the RASI utilization because of the description that you know the combination of both might decrease the risk at least for hyperkalemia, which is one of the one of the problems that we see when trying to implement those therapies. All right, so um, now the new thing, very very new thing that happened in in this area of um, kind of non-immunosuppressive therapies is um, not only trials, but um, readout of some trials of the endothelin receptor antagonists. Um, Dana reads, can you summarize what we have at the moment about this? Yeah, so right uh, hot off the press, as they say, um, is the conditional approval that the FDA granted to Sparsantan. Uh, uh, and Sparsantan is, for those of you that may not be familiar with it, is a, um, a combination of an endothelin antagonist with an angiotensin receptor blocker. So it's a dual acting uh, therapy. And based on the preliminary results from the PROTECT trial that showed a significant reduction in proteinuria in the treatment arm compared to the control arm, which received herbisartan alone. Um, the FDA granted Sparsantan, again, conditional approval. They are still awaiting the readout from the trial as far as EGFR outcomes. So the kidney uh, protection, if you will, outcome, although the, the thought is if you reduce proteinuria, hopefully that will translate into mm -hmm. protection uh, against decline in kidney function, but the jury, of course, is still out. Right. So right. so that was pretty remarkable. Uh, was, was there something in the trials that uh, caused concern in terms of safety? So the not during the trial, having said that, endothelin antagonists as a class of drug uh, have uh, been used in other disease conditions and other indications. And in those contexts, some of the trials showed an increased risk of hepatotoxicity. So given that, the FDA decided uh, to enroll patients who are treated with Sparsant into a REMS program, the risk mitigation program or uh, the, the risk mitigation um, a monitoring program uh, that requires that patients who are treated with Sparsantan end up getting liver function tests done initially monthly for about a year and then after that quarterly. Um, again, that was uh, more concern over the risk associated with that class of drug, not particularly from the PROTECT trial uh, that did not really have you know major uh, safety signal. But nonetheless, I think uh, it is important to keep safety in mind as we evaluate all these um, therapies that show efficacy. Uh, we're in an era where efficacy alone is not going to cut it. We've seen that with steroids, for example. So you really want to optimize efficacy and minimize risk, uh, so keeping safety in mind. The other concern with endothelin um, antagonists is the, uh, you know, fetal toxicity. So again, uh, you cannot get, uh, if you're a female patient, you can get pregnant. And then even concern uh, in male uh, participants. So really uh, any patient that's planning to start a family, have kids, probably should not be, not probably, I should say, should not be prescribed endothelin inhibitors during that period of time. Yeah. And the, and the other one in phase, in final phase of trials is, um, Atranzantin, which actually it might be familiar to nephrologists, 
that participated or or heard the results about the sonar trial it was it was a drug that was tested in diabetic kidney disease right and the the results were pretty promising there but never got into to practice but um there's also trials um in IGA and nephropathy for that that second member of the class that are almost at the end of um of um, follow-up for the first phase right Right. So the phase three trial, the ALIGN trial that's sponsored by Chinook is ongoing and we should have results pretty soon, uh, assuming in the foreseeable future, they're still enrolling into that into that phase three trial. Yeah. But uh, again, um, exciting, uh, exciting times for uh, any physician treating IgA patients. I know, isn't it? Then Larson, uh, I mean, how do you see the introduction of this class of drugs? I mean, is it going to be... Uh, a challenge you think in trying, trying to find out because I, I think in the trials they were added to the standard of care mm-hmm. in in a particular you know patient profile how, how do you see the introduction in there yeah i think uh it's so interesting because as Dr. Rose was saying, there's so many medications that are coming out in IGA neuropathy and a lot yeah. of different trials that have been ongoing. And so I wonder at which point are we going to start to favor one versus the other? And of course, right. you know, starting with RASI, of course, all the time, kind of getting that foundation and that base and we know that works well and we'll take out a, a lot of the patients to potentially treat. Yeah. And now I'm looking at, okay, do I have an SGLT2? Do I try this new uh, medication? And you know, just kind of looking at the side effect profile that we have so far, I feel like my first reach would be for the SGLT2. I'm much more comfortable prescribing those and have done so mm-hmm. in the past. They're more readily available, don't have quite the same toxicity monitoring. And so um, from just sort of a, a nephrologist ease of, of grabbing one, it seems that would be the, the more straightforward one to start with. But I think as these become more and more available and we see them used more, you know, it'd be great to have head-to-head trials, kind of comparing some of these additional therapies as we go along to to help guide physicians in that. Yeah, um, interesting, right? Uh, maybe back to you, then. The, the do you see the endothelial receptor antagonist as another layer of supportive therapy? Meaning, are we talking still about more the hemodynamic effect, albuminuria reduction, that kind of stuff? Or is it really disease modifying? Is it, or it, does it tackle a part of the mechanism of disease that you know that is really crucial? How, how do you see that? That's a great question. I do think they have a hemodynamic effect, but there is probably there is more to the endothelial inhibitors than just a hemodynamic effect. At least there's some mm-hmm. data to suggest they have antifibrotic uh, properties. So, so I think. Uh, we still think of them as supportive care in that, you know, when you uh, dichotomize therapy as supportive versus immunosuppressive or non-immunosuppressive uh, versus immunosuppressive perhaps is a better way to split it. They're certainly in the non-immunosuppressive uh, right. group, but they, I think they do have more properties than just hemodynamic effects. Yeah. And that that's important to keep in mind. Yeah. 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 That characteristic of not being an immunosuppression, I think helped a lot, you know, the uh, expediting trial recruitment, because we need to yes. look back and understand that this, this whole thing happened during the pandemic. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. We definitely kept going uh, even during the pandemic, which is yeah. remarkable. 
Absolutely. And it's an oral drug. That's an, an important thing. Because yes. I, I think, uh, and kind of like moving to the, you know, the other uh, treatment options, maybe, you know, the mode of administration or route of administration would be something that might differentiate some of the, the new options. And now talking about, you know, revisiting immunosuppressive treatment, I wanted to touch on, you know, testing. That's another a new information that came to the area and kind of changed a little bit the way we see um, the management of patients that have more aggressive kidney disease. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Dana, in, in, uh, rates in terms of in terms of um, what is it that the, the testing changes um, and uh, to to current current management? I would say nephrologists have a love-hate relationship with steroids. We, we like to, I mean, I always say, you know, we love to hate them, right? So they work, we've used them extensively in many, many diseases, particularly in GNs. And I don't want to minimize, uh, honestly, how much steroids change uh, really the outcome of a lot of glomerular diseases. And that's all we had for a long time. Having said that, I think in recent years, we started having a greater appreciation for, number one, how big of a dose we're using. So really like the being too aggressive with dosing steroids. And second, uh, we are starting to, again, have a bigger appreciation for their side effect profile, short-term uh, and long-term, and uh, it's been an eye-opener. So the testing trial, uh, when it started, was using high doses of steroids, or I should say higher doses of steroids, and the uh, trial had to be halted uh, by the Data Safety Monitoring Board because of an increased risk of uh, serious adverse events that included mostly infectious complications, including death. Mm. And so then they pivoted and were able to continue the study by using lower doses of steroids, uh, by recruiting patients that had a higher uh, GFR. So they did not go to the low EGFR values that we were talking about. So the lowest EGFR uh, allowed into the trial was pushed up from 20 to 30. uh, And patients were given prophylactic antibiotics to prevent infections as much as possible and continued on. And, and the reason for it is that there was uh, at least signals of efficacy. The proteinuria did come down. There was a, you know initially slowing down in the EGFR loss and so on and so forth. Uh, and we were trying, or they were trying to mitigate the risk of complications, particularly, like I said, infectious complications. Um, so, so in that sense, I think, Recent trials that looked at the benefit of steroids, again, highlighted more and more their uh, the concern for their side effect profile that we should not be ignoring. And so I think it's going to be true of all therapies going forward. We, again, want to maximize efficacy, but minimize side effects and toxicity uh, and uh, really uh, the, look at that pretty carefully. Yeah. I guess in the same line of um, corticoid therapies, there's also budenoside that has been approved. Same similar similar model in the United States, right? They accelerated approval a few mm-hmm. months ago. 
spinning practice. I don't know, Dana Larson, if you had 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 a, a chance to to use the drug or to heard hear about that and and some impre- early impressions about that 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 other option at least in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so haven't gotten the chance to use it yet myself. I would say we were reviewing a case um, just the other day uh, of an adverse event to kind of systemic steroids. And, you know, mm. the thought was, had this patient been treated now, as opposed to the couple of years ago, we were looking at, right. could we have potentially used vedestinide as a, as a treatment option to kind of really target that therapy and mm. help to reduce um, the side effect profile that I think, you know, Dr. Risk uh, really eloquently kind of went through and is a major concern, not only for us and, you know, for the patients themselves as well that are starting to join us and sort of weighing these risk benefit discussions um, very, very handily. So um, I think, you know, it could be helpful. What I, I think the other thing that's um, these kind of discussions and conversations bring about is really the need to continue as we circle back to the beginning, our risk stratification methods to really say who, who's going to benefit from this long-term if I'm looking at a 25-year-old sitting in front of me or a, you know, 45-year-old and, and, and their different characteristics. I just, um, I think it kind of adds to the ongoing need for uh, risk stratification uh, research as well at the same time. Right. Anything to add then, um, Ritz? The, I know that the, there's there's been also expansion of the approval being discussed in Europe and other regions too. Yeah, I think so. For the audience that's not familiar with uh, localized bidesonide, so Tarpeo uh, is um, again bidesonide has been long, uh, around for a long time and has been used for different indications. The new concept here is that it is uh, packaged in a specific. A capsule that allows the release of bidesonide at the level of the Peyer's patches, the ilium mostly, where you have the highest concentration of Peyer's patches. And the thought is that you would target these B cells that trigger the disease at the mucosal surface. So uh, having said that, there is some systemic absorption of steroid, but it's much more limited. So again, here, maximizing the benefit while minimizing toxicity is the whole concept. And so they did get conditional approval in the US. Uh, again, just like we talked about Sparsenta and same concept based on the um, primary outcome of proteinuria in this trial. The trial is ongoing uh, to look at longer term EGFR outcomes. Essentially, does the reduction in proteinuria translate into kidney protection. Uh, And so they have since then gotten approval for use in Europe and uh, are being reviewed in Asia as well uh, and should get hopefully approval any any day. Uh, So, um, you know, I think as we add to the armamentarium, I think Dana Larson made a very good point. Uh, We're going to have to decide which patient gets which therapy and some of it will be risk stratification. Some of it will be discussion with the patient about the side effect profile, what's acceptable, what's not acceptable. Um, taking into account, again, in young patients, fertility issues, you know, family planning. So discussions that we may not be having with our older CKD population. So they are truly a special cohort of patients, and we have to treat them as such and take all this into account. It's interesting because uh, thinking about special patients, right? There's 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 a few things also that seem to work particularly well in Asia, right? 
And I, I find it fascinating. And, you know, not only, you know, the some some more traditional things like tocilectomy seems to be much, you know, better for patients in, in their region. And, and recently, there's also this MMF re, re, revisit, right? <laughs> and yes. it's, is it my, my impression or it seems to be something that is also very peculiar in the Asian population? Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that goes back to the question you asked at the beginning. Is this a different disease across the world? And, you know, and I think yeah. in my uh, in my mind, yes. So to your point, tonsillectomy has mostly been shown to be beneficial in among Japanese. Um, retrospective data among Caucasian populations did not show any uh, benefit. Uh, although in Japan, it's often used also on some background of steroids, you know, in combination with tonsillectomy, but it seemed to have an additional benefit. Uh, MMF, uh, as you astutely um, pointed out, the MMF revisited or MMF 2.0. Yeah. Uh, we had prior trials that, again, in among Asians uh, showed that MMF could be used as a steroid sparing therapy. More recently, the trial you're alluding to, um, you know, looked at MMF versus conservative therapy uh, mm. or non-immunosuppressive uh, therapy. And again, uh, it, the patient population was restricted to Chinese population. So we'll have to uh, not expand the conclusions to populations beyond that. Uh, relatively short, uh, you know, follow-up, but the results again seem to be uh, at least in the short term, uh, it seems to have benefit both on renal outcomes and proteinuria. So uh, there certainly, you know, could be a world we can envision where different treatments would be implemented for different parts of the world. So I think the KDGO guidelines are going to have a really hard time (laughs) sorting all this out and giving guidelines to the entire globe, um, unified guidelines, I would say. I know, but the poor guys, right? <laughs> you know, yes. It's, it's so many challenges. And I just wanted to transition to the last topic I wanted to talk to you about. And that is uh, that, that that's what's in the horizon, right? I know then uh, that we, we've we been working together and some, some of this ongoing tries. It is it is amazing. You know, I think uh, nobody would think some, some years ago that that I that that idea that came up in the previous KDGO guidelines for GN that you know for, for a certain profile of patients who should not be on immunosuppressive therapies with IgA nephropathy, the the right thing to do would be to recruit them in a trial was actually taken by the community in such a, an amazing way, and uh, we see that you know talking to you know investigators nephrologists you know, involved in clinical trials around the world. That you know that they are they are really you know moving in that direction and even so, because of the amount of new trials, we're starting to to struggle a little bit on you know finding patients for for the new ones right. So this is how busy how busy this uh, this area is, and uh, I know we don't have a lot of time and maybe not the the main focus of the our conversation today, but. Um, Dana, risk. I, I think we. <laughs> I'll challenge you with, um, you know, um, 
like a question to to provide an, an overview of you know what is what is in the horizon in IJN property. <laughs> Yeah, you uh, nailed it, uh, Roberto. I think it's a good problem to have is what I would say first. Uh, we have so many ongoing trials. I think placing or moving up participation in clinical trials uh, up the decision tree in the KDGO guidelines certainly helps physicians in practice and investigators offer patients clinical trials. It brings it to their mind and it also validates the fact that clinical trials are part of clinical practice. You have to offer patients and give them the opportunity to make a decision for themselves, informed decision, I would say. I think it's important uh, for us as a community, uh, nephrologists at large around the world, to take this seriously. If we don't succeed with all these clinical trials, we would have missed a tremendous opportunity. Right. I feel very strongly we need to cross the finish line. We need to recruit for these trials. We need to keep patients in the trials so we can get valid answers and have the luxury of saying, we have, you know, five, six, seven, ten treatment options for you. Here's the best one uh, for you, that particular patient sitting in front of me in clinic. Uh, but I think the onus and the responsibility is on us, really, as a community. Absolutely, yeah. Well, final question to you then, Larson. I mean, do you do you realize how lucky you are, you know, being just out of fellowship in this <laughs> era of nephrology? You know, Dana Reason and myself. I mean, we've been in practice for 20 years and not not much happening. How how do you feel as a young nephrologist you now getting into this field? Yeah, no, it's super exciting. I'm lucky to just be sitting here with both of you today, kind of discussing all of these options and hearing your experts' opinions as well. Um, you know, the time is exciting. And I think as we recruit um, more students, residents, fellows into our field and uh, continue to explore with these big trials and get some concrete answers or as concrete as we can uh, with the trials going forward, um, it can only open more opportunities for um, our patients. And that's really what we're trying to do. So it's definitely exciting. Uh, sometimes difficult to keep up with all the different things that are going on. And that's why it's great to have folks like you to kind of help summarize and, and guide the path forward. Thank you. And and then I read what, what's your your final message here as a, as the one of the queens of IGA nephropathy. What's <laughs> thank what's you. That's a new title word? that uh, <laughs> nobody has bestowed on me yet. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm honored, Roberto. I would say again, exciting time. Uh, I, I really um, look back and say, although we say there have been no advances in nephrology. I would say as a community, we've been trying the fact that we had negative trials or, you know, trials that did not pan out uh, really doesn't speak against us. I think all along we were trying to find better solutions for our patients and we continue to do so. But the future is really bright. It's very exciting. And to have the opportunity to talk about a different therapy, uh, different days uh, is just amazing. And I think the this opens up tremendous opportunities for other glomerular diseases as well, because as things usually happen, you start with one disease and then you start testing that same therapy in other fields uh, of nephrology or other you know, parts of nephrology. And, and I think um, this is, I think the future is really bright. Right. Well, guys, what a pleasant conversation. Thank you so much for spending this uh, time with us. Uh, this was the ISN uh, Global Kidney Care Podcast. Thanks so much, and I'll see you around in the nephrology world. 
Thank you. Thanks for having yeah. us. Thank you.